A good friend of mine who is a nurse told me once that a woman's brain does not recover from pregnancy until two years after weaning her child. Which means, with nine years between the oldest and youngest of my four kids, I had pregnancy brain for most of 12 years, four of which were spent completing my college degree. Does anybody else see a potential problem there? Anyway, since most of this took place from the mid-90s on, of course the book that seemed to stay by my bedside was What to Expect When You're Expecting by Heidi Murkoff and Sharon Mazel. It was a New York Times bestseller, voted one of USA Today's most influential books in the past 25 years, and estimated to be read by more than 90% of pregnant women who read a pregnancy book. One of the things that made this book so great was that it answered the questions that most of us are not brave enough to ask out loud. And since the book came out before the days of Google, it was a godsend to many of us facing our first pregnancies. I've long since given my copy to a friend, and while most of the chapters were titled first month, second month, and so on, I remember the last chapter in my edition asking the question, what if something goes wrong? I had mixed feelings about that chapter being in my book. No pregnant woman should spend much time entertaining the myriad of what-ifs that exist in her new universe. At the same time, when Jeff and I experienced a miscarriage between having Jonathan and Joshua, I was grateful for the information available to me in the quiet solitude of my own home. And as painful as it was, I'm now able to offer personal understanding and comfort to women who are worried about or facing their own what-ifs. Thankfully, God doesn't waste the hard things we go through. He uses them to grow and shape us, and then he uses them again to allow us to help and encourage others facing similar situations later down the road. That is, if we let him. I'm your host, Julie Moore, and you're listening to the eighth episode of Beyond Curriculum, a podcast series about something often missing from the homeschool conversation, the perspectives and values that make it possible to cultivate lifelong learners. We're wrapping up season one, which has been looking at all the change a mom faces when she becomes a homeschooler. Some of these changes can be exciting, while others can produce a lot of worry and anxiety if they're allowed to run unchecked. One of those is when it looks like something may be going wrong. I've brushed up against this scenario at least twice myself with two different kids. The first was with my second born son, Joshua, my storyteller. He doesn't remember this, but I do because it's the first time I experienced how quickly my mind could take me into worry from zero to anxious in 1.2 seconds. Joshua was three and a half. His older brother, Jonathan, was seven, and his new baby sister, Jenica, had just been born. Both Jonathan and Joshua had distinguished themselves as verbal and articulate, especially for boys, but all of a sudden, Joshua started to stutter. Not wanting him to become frustrated or self-conscious, we naturally waited patiently for him to get his thought out, and the conversation continued. But the longer this went on, the more concerned I became. So I mentioned it to one of our pastors who had raised four children of his own. As I described an event or two, I saw this grin come over his face. Wisely, he began by encouraging me to consider visiting with our pediatrician if this continued for much longer. 
And then he offered up another possibility of what might be happening. Knowing that the rest of our family, Jeff, Jonathan, and myself, are pretty high gear and verbal, he suspected that Joshua had discovered how, as a three-year-old, to make us slow down enough for him to enter the conversation. He couldn't insert his whole thought quickly enough, but he could get the beginning of one word into the gap and repeat it over and over until the rest of us went quiet and he could say what he wanted to say. My gut told me our pastor might be onto something. So to rule out this possibility before pursuing more serious channels, I taught Joshua the interrupt rule. Anytime I was talking, especially with another grown-up, and Joshua wanted to enter or interrupt the conversation, he learned to quietly place his hand on my side. This would let me know he had something to say. I would then place my hand on his to let him know I recognized he was there, and at a natural point in the conversation, I would turn and look at him and listen. To my surprise, that's all it took to make the stuttering stop. And in time, he was able to appropriately jump into conversations without that extra step. Still to this day, he is not the guy who will dominantly interrupt and talk over someone, but he hasn't had any more trouble with stuttering. Of course, the obvious disclaimer goes here. I am certainly not suggesting that all stuttering is an intentional choice that is this easily cured. My point is that many times there's a contextual reason for the presenting problem, but we jump to the worst case scenario rather than paying attention to the little clues lying around able to help us solve the problem. Zane was my second born and pretty much in personality, he's everything opposite to my firstborn, Tobin. We homeschooled both of them all the way from the beginning. And we kind of suspect, I suspected that we would see some differences in the way they learned. I was not expecting the direction that the differences took. This is Lydia. She's been one of my encouraging and faithful editors, in addition to designing most of the podcast artwork. She's married to Raymond Wong, and together they're raising two sons. Their oldest, Tobin, is the same age as our youngest daughter, Jordan, and Zane is 10. It seems like our families have been friends forever because for years now, we've worked together, created together, learned together, and raised our kids together, challenging and encouraging each other all along the way. I was homeschooled growing up and had pretty much determined I'm never going to do this when I, was, when I grow up. Uh-huh. Because, um, you know, homeschooling in the late 70s was not the beast that it is today. It was right. very much like we're just going to put a schoolroom at home. So there was not the freedom. There was not the curriculum choices. It was just a kind of a reactionary movement in the early days, mm-hmm. whereas people homeschool for many different reasons now. I wanted my kids to have experiences of band and orchestra and just stuff that I didn't get to do when I was young. Mm-hmm. But we had pretty well determined public school was not the thing. I think because partly I've never experienced it, so I'm pretty intimidated by public school. And I knew Christian schools or private schools, and so we, my husband and I talked about that, and then we were like, we can't afford it, so I guess we're homeschooling. Mm -hmm. But it was really when Zane came along that I realized this was not something we fell into. Mm -hmm. This was something God directed for our family. Tobin was pretty quick to learn how to read. 
basically I gave him the foundation blocks and then he taught himself to read when he was five because I got sick and he got bored. And so he picked up books and just went to town with it. And we saw from an early age that Zane was having trouble learning how to read to begin with. Like reading was a difficulty for him. He had a hard time learning um, the alphabet. He was not, he did not pick up a book and teach himself to read at five. He really was having a hard time at six even connecting, you know, what letter was what in the alphabet. But he was really mm-hmm. smart in other areas. So I wasn't worried about his brain. Um, mm-hmm. He was very intelligent with, with puzzling and with math and with connecting dots and being able to see the big picture in life. We, w- we could ta- tell a story when he was five, and he would, he would draw out the large principle from that. He has an ability to pattern that's beyond anything I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that he knows how to solve a Rubik's Cube, he knows how to do it, but he can create unique patterns out of it mm-hmm. and solve it from those patterns without going back to the beginning and starting over. I've seen him walk outside and go, Mom, I'm just completely overwhelmed by all the colors around me right now. Right. Like he sees them in a way that yeah. most kids, maybe they see, but they don't express. Um, mm-hmm. His eyes are just attuned to that. So there was a discrepancy um, that mm-hmm. I saw in his his ability to um, learn the letters. And then that kind of translated into notice and started noticing that he was having trouble with his fine motor skills as well. His drawing was on a lower level than what you would anticipate for like a six or seven year old. It still looked like little child drawings. When he did start writing, he would write his threes backward and he would write his E's. He would do that stuff, but it didn't stand out to me as being unique. I saw symptoms of that kind of across the board in I think that his having difficulty identifying the alphabet was part of it, flipping numbers and even reading numbers backwards. So he might read 69 as 96. But, you know, things that you typically think, well, that's a dyslexic thing or that's an right. ADD thing maybe. Dyslexia. The word that strikes fear into the hearts of most homeschool moms and keeps them up at night. I think if there's one learning disability that we're afraid of, it's that one. And I can't tell you how many times a young homeschooling mom has come to me with a description of an academic challenge she's facing with one of her kids, usually her firstborn, or her second if her firstborn was like Tobin and taught himself to read because he was bored. And then she asks me, do you think this could be dyslexia? I've had the same type of experience myself. And again, I'm certainly not saying that dyslexia is not real. I know it is. But what I've heard from the moms who actually do have a kiddo with dyslexia is this. You will know it if you're facing it. So I encourage the worried, exhausted, frustrated mom to take a deep breath and take in the big picture to look for additional clues before jumping to what seems like the worst case scenario. I don't think I ever had the thought of, my kid has a learning disability. 
because it was so it was consistent across the board in multiple areas not just in it didn't show up like as a red flag in one spot as a homeschool mom I think there's so much pressure to keep up with what the kids in school are doing and my husband never gave me that kind of pressure he was always very chill about it he was like he'll learn he's smart and that's what I had going in my head he'll learn he's smart it'll happen Mm -hmm. I just need to give it time to let it happen but when he got to be seven I thought to myself okay dude we have got to conquer this handwriting thing like it's you are seven and you need to learn how to write and he could write Mm -hmm. some but it was very hard and very much a struggle he hated it it was painful to watch we tried multiple things but I think the key was as I worked with him I was aware of a difference and I, I think that moms just have an instinct in us if we will listen, we have an instinct in us to know what is um, pushback from the child just because they're kind of rebelling and what is legitimate and an actual problem. And I think the level of frustration that he was experiencing was not typical for him. In order to see that, I had to look at him as a rounded person, as a complete person. How did he respond when I said, pick up your room? And he didn't want to. It wasn't that level of frustration. And I prayed a lot. I think a big prayer that I had during all of those years was, God, please show me if I'm wrong. I feel like he's okay. I feel like he's okay. That there's something that I don't know what it is, but it's not major. But if I'm wrong in that, and if we're failing him, and if he needs testing or whatever done, show me make it very clear and so he sat down with his pencil and I watched him and five minutes into writing I noticed he was hooking his hand around and I it's hard on the phone to describe what that looks like but if your hand is starting to hook around so that you you know your wrist is all curved above your letters so that you're like your arm is above the letters and your hand is down and your letters are down at the bottom kind of equal with your elbow that's not good So when I saw him hooking like that, I just went, wait a second, hold it, (laughs) stop, stop, Mm -hmm. stop, stop, why don't you switch your hands and see how that feels, and he was at first kind of frustrated with like, oh, I've been doing this with my right hand all this time, I've been doing everything with my right hand, why should I have to change this, and I was like, just give it a shot, you know, let's try it. So he switched over to his left hand, and of course it was very awkward, because he'd been using his right hand all this time, so his handwriting immediately, like, plunged, like, two years regression in a heartbeat, because he's now using his hand that he hasn't had any practice with. He sat there, and he he did his writing for, like, five minutes, and then he said, Mom, I feel like my brain can relax. Oh, wow. And I went, bingo, there it is. If Lydia's discovery surprises you, let me explain. It used to be a normal practice in schools and with parents to force their naturally left-handed children to become right-handed. Entire methods were developed for this, 
including physically restraining the child's left hand at a very young age so they would have to do everything with their right. Problem solved, right? Wrong. What was not understood is that left or right-handedness is not a simple physical function, but a deeply complex one attached to brain development. Our brains are cross-wired, meaning the left side of our brains control the right side of our bodies and vice versa. When a natural lefty uses his left hand, the right side of the brain handles the extra function as it was designed to do. But when a natural lefty is made to, or in Zane's case, mistakenly chooses to use his right hand instead, his left brain is overtaxed and his right brain is underused. When the brain functions off balance like this, additional problems begin to appear. Because more energy is required for the off-balanced brain to operate correctly, the person has difficulty concentrating due to mental fatigue. Spatial disorientation causes confusion with left and right, which results in flipping numbers and letters and creates difficulty reading and spelling. Even speech problems like stuttering can develop. Perhaps the most famous case of this is King George VI. Think Colin Firth in the King's speech. His timidity and nervousness was likely another symptom of this unbalanced brain. I asked Zane to help us understand what it felt like to switch from his right hand to his left. His description is better than anything I've run across in my research. It felt like you've had a bed with a bad mattress and a thin blanket. And then all of a sudden it just got swapped off for a fluffy mattress. You actually have a pillow this time, and it's a blanket that actually keeps you warm. How's that to give you an idea of the daily struggle cross-handed children face? And what happened with his reading ability? Was that really attached to this whole left-handed thing? He began to be aware that he was flipping his numbers. Mm -hmm. And we had conversations about, you know, dude, your, your brain is having to rewire itself mm -hmm. because you are living in a right-handed world. So mm -hmm. if he looks at a three, his brain flips it, and he has to learn to flip it back before he produces right. it. That's complicated. Yep. And then slowly his mind has fired the synapses. It was like once he realized this is a struggle, then mm -hmm. his brain could go, ah, we must work on this, and it began to work right. on it. And now, he, he's 10, he doesn't flip numbers, he doesn't flip letters, and, and his reading took off like a skyrocket. It's so interesting when you, when you watch mm -hmm. a child learning to read, they can learn all the skills, but there's a moment when it's like mm -hmm. a light bulb goes off in their head. And I right. saw that happen to him when he was like nine and a half. All of a sudden, he was like, could not get enough books in his hands. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like after hearing people talk about this big juicy steak called reading, finally mm -hmm. finding out that it actually is big and juicy and not dry, hard bones. When we hear stories like this told in a 20-minute segment, it can be easy to miss the reality of the struggle. It took Lydia two and a half to three years of praying and giving Zane time and trying different things and studying him as a whole person before she identified the root issue. And then 
It was another year and a half of concentrated work before Zane recovered the academic ground that had been lost. It's interesting because I'll see him still every now and then doing things right-handedly. And I'll just mm-hmm. ask him, is that, is that how you do that? And he's like, yeah, it's comfortable. And I'll say, why don't you try mm-hmm. it with your left hand and just see? I put him in art classes because we wanted to develop his left hand kind of right. in a natural way. Like mm-hmm. if he was three, we would have given him a big paintbrush and he would paint in a broad stroke, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So we tried to do as much of that as we could, give him ways to kind of start with his left hand broad stroke and work him toward more fine motor skills. Our our culture is so, like, divided. We divide academics from real life. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, it just seems like so much of everything is specialized and not holistic in its Mm -hmm. approach in our culture. And I think we just miss the fact that a person's body and how their body is functioning is Mm -hmm totally tied in with how their brain is working. That's that's really sad that we miss that. I mean, to me, it's significant that mm-hmm. so much of the things that Zane was struggling with began to fall into place after we figured out he was left-handed. I would right. say that was like a miracle year for us. <laughs> it was yeah. like so many things began to fall into place. I had planned for this to be the final episode, but I have one more wonderful story to tell. Before we get to that, however, I want to share a decision with you that I'm really excited about. When I started Beyond Curriculum, I also had to make some important business decisions, like how to monetize so that I can afford to invest my time in regularly producing the podcast. The way most podcasts do this is through sponsors. However, as I listened to other podcasts, I quickly found myself being bothered by the commercial interruptions. And that got me thinking, why would I turn around and do that to you? Thankfully, I learned about another option, Patreon. I'm on a simple mission to make the choice to homeschool an easier one. And Patreon is an easy way for you to join me in this mission. When you choose to support the show, you're investing your treasure, your time and hard-earned money into something bigger than yourself. Something that will benefit the rapidly growing homeschool community, which may one day include your grown children and dear friends who have not yet started homeschooling. Together, we will have produced great content that makes their efforts more successful because they are able to stand on our shoulders and learn from our experiences. What a gift we can give them. Most homeschool families already have the task of supporting a large family on one income, so budgets are important. That's why I'm so thrilled that Patreon makes it possible to give regular contributions at a level that works for you, like $2 a month. So ask yourself these simple questions. Do I want to help make homeschooling an easier choice for others? Could I benefit from taking an active role in a community like Beyond Curriculum Patrons? Do I want Julie to produce more great content that keeps me encouraged in my journey? If you answered yes to any of these questions, go to beyondcurriculumpodcast.com, scroll to the end of the show notes for this episode, click the Become a Patron button, choose your contribution level, and let's get started today. 
This episode was made possible by my first patrons who support Beyond Curriculum with a $10 monthly pledge, my educational entrepreneurs, Jonathan Moore and Dwayne and Linda Merritt. Thank you so much for your support. Editing help was provided by Joshua Moore and Brian Hobbs. Original music was provided by Jeff Moore, who also produced the episode. And special thanks goes to Lydia and Zane Wong. Without you, we wouldn't have had such an encouraging story. Thanks for sharing it with us. Next time on Beyond Curriculum, we'll meet the Morrises. That was where he was first diagnosed as having a reading learning disability and a writing learning disability. And I remember asking the lady, well, how bad is it? You know, is it, um, is it really severe? Is it just mild? And, but she said, no, it's, it's very severe. So okay. that was kind of my first <laughs> realization. Okay, this is, you know, we're dealing with something maybe more than what I can handle. Even though I have an elementary education degree, you know, I didn't feel like I had any expertise with learning difficulties. Yes. There was a clinical diagnosis of dyslexia, but their story doesn't end there. You will not want to miss the final episode of season one, where we'll hear from this homeschool mom and her grown son as they share about the challenges and the unexpected abilities that come with the dyslexic brain.